Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. I told first hour, whenever I hear that music, I don't know whether to start by saying, you're fired or don't impeach me, right? One of those two. Hey, uh, we're glad to have you here today. We hope that you feel welcome here at Batcher Creek. And after service, I always try to make sure that I'm uh, by the doors that go outside the exit of the church. So if you're newer here to the church, I'd love to meet you on your way out today and uh, hear your name, a little bit about your story. So I'll be out in the foyer after service is over today. Hey, do you remember when you were a kid and you always remember your parents telling you those things that you could and couldn't do? You know, you can't eat this, you can't eat that, don't watch this, don't watch that, don't go there, don't do that, don't, 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 right? And as a kid, you didn't really understand why your parents were always telling you that. But then when you got to be an adult and you had your own kids, guess what you're telling your kids? Here's what you can and can't do, don't, 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 right? And your kids don't understand it right now. But when they have their own kids, they're going to find themselves saying the exact same things you're telling them. So what is it that makes the difference between childhood and adulthood when it comes to these certain things? Here's what it all boils down to. Age, maturity, and perspective. All right? So today, just so you're clear as we get started, my whole goal today, to the best of my ability, I'm going to try to pry open your minds and I'm going to try to pry open your hearts so that collectively we can see our stuff, our money, our wealth as God sees it. And we can respond as God wants us to respond to this stuff. Because here's what I'm convinced of this morning. If we could see our resources, our finances, our stuff, our money as God sees it then we would never have to have fundraising or capital campaigns or if a missionary ever came in and said, man, we've got these needs on the mission field, they would leave fully funded because the money's there. It's in bank accounts, it's in wallets, it's in checking accounts, but it's all a matter of perspective, right? So that's why we're doing this series called Rich Toward God. We're doing it because here at Bachelor Creek, we take Jesus very, very seriously, which means we take what Jesus said very seriously. And Jesus, did he say a little or a lot about money? A lot. He said a lot about money. And the reason why he said a lot about money is because every human being on the face of the earth has some sort of relationship with money. It's either a good relationship, a healthy relationship, where you're in the driver's seat and your money does what you tell it to do, or it's a bad relationship, it's an unhealthy relationship where your money's in the driver's seat and it's telling you what to do. And remember we said from the get-go, every week I've been beating this drum. This is not about what Jesus wants from you, it's all about what Jesus wants what? For you. That's what it's all about, all right? And what is it that Jesus wants for every single one of us? We said from week one that Jesus wants you and he wants me and he wants all his followers to be rich. He wants us to be rich, but not in a worldly kind of way, right? Not in the wealth and the riches like the world pursues. He wants us to be uniquely rich. He wants us to be rich toward what? God. And what that involves it is involves a mind shift 
and a heart shift from you and I that's different from the world's view of money and wealth. Because there's really predominantly two views of money, wealth, and possessions in the world, all right? One view is ownership, right? One view is stewardship. And these are kind of technical terms, so we really described ownership with a one-word definition, and the one-word definition for ownership is the word what? Mine. It's mine, right? I earned it. It belongs to me. I have rights. I have privileges to it. it it's mine. Stewardship doesn't think that way, though. The one-word definition for stewardship is the word what? His. It's God's. I'm not an owner. I'm a steward. I've been entrusted to it. God has let it filter down to me through my hands for his express purposes. And I give it away. I distribute it as I feel so led by him. But it doesn't begin and it doesn't just end on me. And as followers of Jesus, Jesus says there's two different types of questions people ask based upon whether they have an ownership mentality or stewardship mentality. Ownership mentality looks at everything in their possession and they ask the one question, what should I do with this? That's ownership. Stewardship, though, when you realize it's not yours, that it's God, the fundamental question you're always asking is, God, what do you want me to do with what you have entrusted me with? And so Jesus tells us a story to drive this point home so his followers can have a healthy kingdom building relationship with money and it's called the story of the rich fool and the reason why he's called a fool is because this guy screws everything up when it comes between ownership and stewardship he's way 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 over on the ownership side stewardship is nowhere on his radar and the point of jesus telling this story is for one reason don't be like this guy all right so Here's what we read in Luke 12. We're going to rehash the story, spend just a little bit of time here, and then I want to open up your mind to some greater things that even Paul says, okay? Luke 12, 16. Let's go through the story. Then he, meaning Jesus, he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Now, the reason he asked, what should I do, is because he had the ownership mentality. It's all mine. There's no one else I need to talk to, no one else I need to consult. He never acknowledged that God might have a hand in his wealth. God might have a hand in his success. God might have made his soil fertile and his crops fine. That's nowhere on his radar. So he begins and ends with me, all right? Then he said, I know, I got a plan. Tear down my barns. And I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back. And I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God, but God said to him, you, what's the word? Fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? And then Jesus concludes this, wraps it all nice and pretty for us by this being the central point. Yes, 
person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. It's foolish, Jesus says, to have big barns and a very, very small heart toward God. This guy had a lot of stuff, but you know what he did not have? He did not have any acknowledgement about where his stuff came from. He wasn't thinking in any terms of like, how can I leverage my stuff? How can I use all that God has given to me for somebody else, to bless somebody else? How can I use it for a greater purpose than me? And Jesus told this story as a way of saying, don't make the same mistake with your life. Your life and my life is not going to be measured by the size of our barns. It's all going to be measured by the size of our heart toward God. So Jesus says, don't waste your one and only life. You've got one life. You've only got so much energy, so much time, so much focus, so much money. So make sure you're putting all this stuff in that which will last over the long haul. And this guy has one goal for his life. Did you catch what his goal was? What was it? Me, myself, and I. He unashamedly admits that he's working toward the end where he can sit back and relax and have this little conversation with himself. My friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. He sees everything that he has as simply a gateway to his own happiness. And here's the question some of you might have this morning. Solomon, is it wrong for me to want to be happy? Can I not want to be happy? And my answer is, yes, you can be happy. We want you to be happy. God wants you to be happy. As your pastor, I want you to be happy. In fact, I want to get you from a level of happiness, and I want you to get to the next level of joy, all right? But here's what I know. If you get to the end of your life and you've wasted your life like this guy wasted his life, you will not be happy. See, no matter how big of a deal any of us individually thinks that we are, living for yourself is way too small of a goal for your life. You and I were created to live for something so much bigger, so much greater than our individual self. So let's take this story, kind of put it on the back burner for a minute, okay? We're going to let it simmer in our mind as we continue to ponder stewardship, ownership, because this guy has showed us the ownership model, the model that God does not endorse, all right? And now we're going to take a look into what Paul says to a church about a great stewardship model, okay? So if you have your Bibles, flip over to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is writing the church at Corinth, and he's got a story to tell them. And he's excited to tell this story. And it's an exciting story to tell because only God could do this, okay? Listen to what it says here in 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. Now remember, Paul's talking to the church at Corinth, and he says, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. In other words, Paul's saying this, listen, Corinthians, those Macedonian brothers and sisters you have, God is moving in a powerful, powerful, powerful way through those churches. And I'm here to tell you exactly what he's done because I witnessed it for myself. 
And then he continues. They are being tested by many troubles. Macedonian churches are plagued with lots of problems. All right? Because wherever you've got people, there you're going to have what? Problems. Inside the church, outside the church. People just bring problems, right? So they've got all sorts of problems. Many troubles, Paul says. And on top of that, they are very what? They're poor. So they've got problems and they've got poverty. Now again, this is unlike Barn Guy. Barn Guy has no problems. His biggest problem is, what am I going to do with all my cash, right? So he's got plenty of cash and no problems. These people have lots of problems and very poor. All right? But, listen to what Paul says. That being the case, they are also filled with, say it with me, abundant joy, which has overflowed, and say it with me, rich generosity. Again, they're not like barn guy. He wasn't thinking generosity. He was thinking self. This church is not thinking self, even though from a worldly perspective, they have every reason to because they got all sorts of problems and they can barely pay their bills. They barely have two nickels to scratch together, right? But they got abundant joy and they've got a generosity that is just overflowing, okay? Here's what Paul says. For I can testify, seen it with my own eyes, I heard it with my own ears, that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. Nobody strong-armed them. Nobody put them on this big guilt trip. Nobody duped them or tricked them or put a gun up to their head. This was their idea. Look at verse 4. They, say the word with me, begged us. Not just once. They begged us again and again for the obligation of sharing. Is that what he says? No. They begged us again and again for what? The privilege. They saw it as a privilege. You mean we can, can partake of this? We can partner with God and do something? It was a privilege for this church to reach down and to do something out of their poverty. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. In other words, the church is like, God is doing something at the church in Jerusalem. We want part of it. Please, Paul, do not deprive us of being a part of this. We want to partner with God, and we want to store up treasures in heaven. We want to bless the believers in Jerusalem. And they begged him about this over and over. So, Paul says in verse 6, in light of that, in light of what the Macedonian churches are doing, we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish the ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways, Paul's going to kind of, you know, puff them up here a little bit. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, you've got great faith, Corinthians. You're gifted speakers. You've got so many gifted speakers at Corinth. Your knowledge, boy, you guys are right up there when it comes to the things you know. And your enthusiasm, your enthusiasm, you know, you're passionate about these things. And your love from us. Here's what Paul says. You've got all these things going on, but 
I want you to excel also in the gracious act of giving. Notice what he says here. I am not commanding you to do this. I'm not forcing your hand on the matter, okay? It's got to be free will, just like the Macedonian churches. But Paul says this. Here's what I am doing. I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. Corinthians, you say you've got great faith. You say you've got great love. You say you've got great enthusiasm. You say you want to see people come to know Jesus. Then here's your chance, Corinthians, to put your money where you say your faith is. It's this beautiful example of stewardship thinking on behalf of the Macedonian churches. Because did you see what Paul said to them? It says, they did more than we had hoped for, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord. Their first action was to basically say, God, what do you want me to do? Now, I want you to see something else that Paul writes, all right? A lot of wisdom in this. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Paul writes young Timothy, and he says, there's something I need you to tell the people at the church. This is very, very important. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. In other words, remember the story Jesus told about barn guy? Put all of his wealth put all his trust in that wealth. Uh-uh, Timothy, you make sure the church knows not to make that same mistake because wealth is so uncertain, but put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Listen to this. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share in this same way, they will, catch this, lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age so that they may take hold of a life that is truly life. Maybe here's the first question we have to ask ourselves in 21st century America, separated from, you know, first century Paul and Timothy. He says, command those who are what? Rich in this present world. Who qualifies as rich? That's kind of one of those things where, where's the standard of rich, right? Where's the standard of wealthy? Here's all I know. When I, when I see that question, when I see that scripture, my mind takes me back to Juarez, Mexico about 10 years ago. When a group of us from this church went down to build a home for a family that was in need, dire need. I mean, you should have seen what they were living in before the home that we built for them as a church. And it's typically the gesture as a thank you from the receiving family to provide a meal, one meal for the work team and anybody who was part of the build project. And it's a sacrifice on their part to feed that many mouths, okay, because there's like 18 to 20 people involved. And we sit down for that meal, and we're eating this soup. And we've got these little pieces of bread. And we were fortunate enough to have at that meal. Do you know what we were so fortunate to have? We were fortunate to have a two liter of soda. 
You know why I know we were fortunate to have that? Because the local Mexican pastor held up the loaf of bread and he held up the two liter of pop and he said, in Juarez, Mexico, if you have these two things, you are a wealthy man. So how do you know if you're rich? If you know you're going to eat tomorrow, I think that kind of settles it. If you don't have to go to a river or a contaminated water source where there's a likelihood you're going to get parasites or some sort of bacteria, or you got to boil your water before you drink it or use it to bathe with or anything like that, I think you're pretty well settled the rich question. If you've got food in your cupboard that could probably last you a week or more, I think that answers the question, who's rich? And I want you to see what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, command those who are rich to stop trying to be rich. Command them to, to stop, you know, pursuing money. That's not what he says. Paul doesn't say, tell them to stop being rich. He says to them, tell them to be good at being rich. Because there's a good way to be rich, and there's a very, very bad way to be rich. We've, saw, we've seen from Barn Guy right now that there's a bad way to be rich. Paul says there's a good way to be rich as well when you partner with God and you're generous and you're meeting needs and you see yourself simply as the steward. Now, you might have missed something in what Paul said. So, Ming, go back to the very first part of what Paul's words there are to Timothy, okay? Very first part of that verse. Paul says, command, there we go, command those who are rich, say this with me, in this present world. So if there's a present world that Paul is alluding to, he must mean that there is also what? Another world. There's this world and there's another world yet to come. And then Paul continues in the next part and he talks about the coming age. So there's this age that you and I live in and that we occupy, but there's a coming age as well. This is not the only age, all right? And Paul makes reference to both of these because here's what he's trying to say. People who excel in the grace of giving, which is what he commanded the Corinthians to do, excel in the grace of giving. People who excel in the grace of giving, when it comes to their stuff, their money, their resources, they have an eternal perspective. All right? Now, we all know that it's been said before. You can't take it with you, right? That when you and I die, it's like we say as Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. And that's true. We can't take any of us with us. Just like somebody said before, you've never seen a U-Haul on the back of a hearse, right? You just can't take it with you. But here's what Scripture attests to. Paul attests to it right here. Jesus attests to it that you can send it ahead of you can actually put treasure in heaven. Paul's saying, and we're going to see what Jesus says here in a second, that each and every one of us as followers of Christ, you know what we have? We have a heavenly portfolio. Just like you have with your investors, your investments, you've got a portfolio. Paul says that we've got this heavenly portfolio. 
portfolio. And we increase that portfolio every time we use an earthly treasure for a heavenly, eternal purpose. It's going to last forever. Here's what Jesus said about it. Matthew 6, 19. Don't store up treasures here on earth. Well, well Jesus, where are we going to store it then? I mean, earth's like the only place we got, right? Nope. Where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. They're very vulnerable. They're very susceptible to things here, Jesus says. Rather, store your treasures, say it with me, in heaven. Where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. It's just a matter of following the money trail, Jesus says. Follow the money trail in somebody's life and you'll see if it takes them to a car, a collection, whatever it is. That's wherever the money is, there you're going to find the heart also. So temporary stuff, according to Jesus, is just moth food. So people who excel at the grace of giving, they understand the difference between these two most critical categories when it comes to their stuff. Eternal and temporal. I so wish that we had these stickers that we could just slap on our stuff that says temporary, 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 temporary. Because if you're like me, sometimes my heart gets way too wound up in this stuff that is temporary. Here's what I know. Y'all ever rented a hotel room before? When you stepped into that hotel room, did you ever say to yourself, this place is not up to my specs. I need to bring a construction crew in here, and we need to remodel this whole thing if I'm going to stay here, right? Did you ever say that? No. Why? Because it's a temporary dwelling. You're not there for the long haul. It'd be insane to invest money in something that's not yours, and you're only going to be there for a short while. Or renting a car. You ever rent a car and be like, nah, I don't like blue. I want that white. And I want to get some nice spinner wheels on it, and I want to get some accessories on it, and we're going to deck this thing out. No, you don't do that. It's a temporary mode of transportation for a temporary need, right? So if that's temporary, here's the question. What really is eternal? Two answers. God and what? God and people are what is eternal. Now, I know that we've maybe seen something like this before, but it's worth repeating. I got a picture up here that I want to show you. There's a dot with a line. Your life and my life is like that little dot. That represents our life on earth. It's got a beginning and it's got an end. And then there's a line after that dot right there. Do you know what that line represents after our life? That represents forever, what Scripture calls eternity. Your eternity, my eternity, our eternity. Because the testimony of Scripture is this. You and I are unceasing spiritual beings with an eternal destiny. Everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. So just imagine that red line 
going off the screen, down the wall, out the church, down the road, and just kind of going on and on and on and on and on forever into infinity because that's what it represents. It represents the eternal. Do you know what that line communicates? You're going to be dead a whole lot longer than you are going to be alive. Life is very short between here and the grave, but from the grave on is forever. So for crying out loud, Paul says and Jesus says, aim at the line, don't aim at the dot. When you think about your stuff, your possessions, your wealth, your, your money, don't think about it in terms of the dot, think about it in terms of the line. Don't let your heart get all wrapped up in the dot because you and I, we were made ultimately for the line. So start using what you have, says Jesus, says Paul, to lay up treasures in God's eternal kingdom. And here's why. Because here's what happens with your stuff and my stuff when we send it forward. Listen to this. This is coming from Jesus, the one we call Lord, the one who knows everything, how everything's going to pay out, okay? He says here, Luke 16, 9, I tell you, Use worldly wealth. Use whatever God has put in your hands, however much, however little, and I have to use whatever God's put in my hands, however much, however little, to gain friends for yourselves. So that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is an incredibly powerful statement that Jesus makes here because here's what he's saying in a nutshell he's saying church my followers all the stuff that you have in your hands is simply a tool everything that you have and here's what Jesus says I want my people to leverage to use anything I've put in their hands so that ultimately someday when your life ceases and you make your way to be with me there will actually be people who welcome you in my kingdom and the reason they are there in my kingdom is because you leveraged your stuff to things that were eternal, ensuring that people like them could be there. Let me play this out a little bit. Here's how this looks on a daily basis, okay? Let's say you die. It's coming. You arrive at heaven. Somebody greets you and says, hey. And you're like, hi? Should I know you? Are you one of the apostles or like a Bible character? No, I'm Fred. Fred? I don't remember an apostle, Fred. Did Fred split the, the seas? Did he? Did? No, that was Moses. Fred, why are you the one who are, who's here greeting me? Fred? Fred's like, listen, you don't know me. We never met on earth. But when I was a teenager in high school, man, my family life was all messed up, and I was doing all sorts of things I shouldn't have been. My thinking was all crazy, and somebody invited me to your church to be part of your youth program. And those kids loved me, and I was taught the greater things of God, and through a series of questions I asked and people loving on me, I finally came to the realization that I needed Jesus. And so I made Jesus Lord of my life, and I lived for Jesus my time here on earth. But I want to tell you what, that church wouldn't have had a youth program had you not faithfully given to that time and time and time again. They wouldn't have had the environment. They wouldn't have had the ministry. They wouldn't have had the outreach or the impact that reached someone like me, Fred. 
So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you gave so that I could be where I'm at today. That, friends, is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And I don't know all the details. I don't claim to know all the details. All I know is this. Apparently, when you give your stuff and you use your stuff and you see your stuff simply as a tool that God can use, all that stuff that Jesus says is here today and tomorrow it's gone, tomorrow it's in a trash heap, tomorrow it's getting eaten, tomorrow it's rusting out, all that stuff. Somehow, when we invest it in kingdom causes, it gets advanced and transferred to a heavenly portfolio where it accrues dividends over time. And when you go to heaven, you're going to be welcomed by people. I'm going to be welcomed by people who were affected for Christ. Because of what you did concerning the line and what I did concerning the line. And because our lives weren't focused on this minuscule little dot called me. Isn't that powerful? So it leaves a question. How can I use what God has entrusted to me? And how can you use what God has entrusted to you so that when you die... Will there be anything eternal to show for what God has entrusted to me as a steward of resources that come from his benevolent hand? Or is it all earth-focused, dot-focused, me, myself, and I focus? You know, I'm sure that most of us in here this morning have investments. We're preparing for the future. And some of you who are really into the whole investing thing, you're really into it. And before you decide whether or not to invest in a certain company, you get something called a prospectus. You know what a prospectus does? It basically shows you what the company's about, what their growth has been, what their growth plan is, um, what their model and projections are for the future. And a prospectus is simply this. It's a way of a company saying, here's every reason why you should believe we're going to do great things, and you can trust us with your money, right? That's what it is. Now, about three months ago, I said to David Diener, our student minister, who also works with our communications here at the church, I said, David, I've got this series coming up in November called Rich Toward God. And I've been thinking it would be great to put in the hands of our people like a church prospectus. Something that shows them what's happened at Batcher Creek in 2019. Something that shows them how God has been glorified through changed lives. Something that shows them how disciples are being made here. Something that shows them what's going on with our kids and our youth and just all the different aspects of our church. Something that shows them why it's good for them to invest and to partner with God and the kingdom at large in the ministry here at Batcher Creek to show them how these investments and these are, are accruing and paying dividends even now that we can see. And I was thinking something like two to three pages, just like a handout we could give you guys with some stats, some figures, you know, just to kind of celebrate some great things here. Well, David took my idea and he went way further with it than I had even hoped or imagined. And we didn't get just a two to three page little handout. 
he came up with a 25-page like magazine that just highlights so many great God-honoring things that have happened here at Thatcher Creek over the course of this last year. So if you see David, would you please thank him for all the time and energy he put into this? This was a labor of love, much greater than what I expected to be, and I'm so glad it is. Because um, if it was up to me, y'all just have a little piece of paper with some black and white stuff on it, okay? But he really went the extra mile. And listen, the most important part of this is when you get to the very end, and it says, this does not happen without who? Without you. Without all of us deciding within ourselves, yeah, the line is more important than the dot. So good news is we have a copy of this for every single person or every family unit today. We got about 500 of these made. So every family unit, we ask that you just take one. And just please note as well, we had to cut off at some point so we could get this to the printers. So all this information in here is really from January through September of 2019. It doesn't even account for what God has done in October, what he's doing in November, or yet to do in December. But we have a great snapshot of the first nine months here at Batcher Creek in 2019. So make sure you get one of these before you leave today. We'll have them at the doors when you leave, one per, per family unit, please. So the whole reason I say that is this. If you ever need a reason to motivate you to invest with God and to give to that which lasts forever, you don't even need to look beyond this room, these hallways, our classroom. This tells you, and I can tell you, friends, it is worth it. Every single time you make a sacrifice for the ongoing purposes of God, whether that's in this church, the kingdom at large, a mission somewhere, it gets recorded on some sort of ledger sheets in heaven, and it is an investment that will be there when you get there. Because it's not susceptible to deterioration, to market depressions, to market highs, to market lows, to rust, to moth, to dust. It is there forever. And it's in the form of human beings who will be enjoying eternity forever because of how this church came together to make a place for people to learn about how they can be discipled. We give. Because a hundred years from now, the only thing that will matter in the lives of all the people that you see here in every picture, young and old, the only thing that will matter a hundred years from now when everyone in this book is dead is where does that man, where does that woman, where does that child stand with Jesus Christ? That's the only thing that will matter, friends. And I say that to encourage all of us to stop living for the dot, live for the line, and just start sending it ahead. So I end with this. Paul pointed the Corinthians to the Macedonian churches, saying, man, look at what they did in their poverty and their problems. 
Look what they did. The generosity just overflowed. Let that be an inspiration to you, Corinthians. But then, listen, he gives an even greater reason. I love this. Verse 9 of chapter 8. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was, say it with me, rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is exactly what we remember at communion. Every time we take the cup, every time we take the loaf, that Jesus Christ gave his life in every possible way a life could be given. He gave his life for people. Because people are the only thing from this old, sin-battered world that are going to last forever. And here's what Jesus does with you and he does with me. He invites us, come partner with me. Love people like I love them. Empty yourself, give of yourself for the sake of others whether that's in service or whether it's monetary or resources, become poor so that other people can have the riches of eternity. He invites us to partner with him, church. And it's the same reason why we give. Because we believe that human beings are the only thing that will last forever. That every soul has an eternal destination And we get to shape, we get to have a say in where that destination is. As we come around the Lord's table, I just want you to remember, as Paul pointed to Jesus as an inspiration to give, let's remember the Jesus who gave in every way that he could, life, word, deed, blood, death, resurrection. Lord, I pray that Batcher Creek, that the people here, I really, I, Lord, I want to take this prayer beyond this church. I want to pray for the other churches who are kingdom-minded. And I pray that churches everywhere, Lord, that name Jesus as Lord and Savior, that they would excel in the grace of giving. And that comes, Lord, when we give ourselves first to you and we say, what does God want me to do? Lord, I thank you for the people here at this church who have sent treasures ahead in heaven. I thank you, Lord, thinking about people from this community who are going to be with you forever because of the ministry of this church and the people who faithfully given. I think, Lord, right now, about that family who's not even here, and they don't even know that they'll be here a year from now, but they're going to be here, and maybe they're going to be in our next publication. But they're going to be here, Lord, because the men and women of this church choose to continue to send it forward and to make Bachelor Creek a beacon of light in a very, very dark world. So we anticipate, Lord, great things that you're going to do, not just what you've done. 
as we make ourselves ready and available to be partners with you in this grace of giving. So thank you, Father, that we get the opportunity to invest in your kingdom, and someday we're going to see all the good that he did. So, Father, we, we live, we give, we worship, we love, all for you. Have your way with us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.